It's May. May 2020. The pandy is still roaming around. Everyone's getting sick. My grandmother has it. My grandmother has it. And she's the poster child for pre-existing conditions. And she's going to beat it. And she is going to beat it. All right? Th list a pre-existing condition. List one. Name one. My grandmother has it. And she is about to beat COVID-19. All right? She's about to lay the smack down on COVID-19. And what does that mean? That means it's almost over. All right? Because guess what, baby? If Sandy Artley, the great Sandy pre-existing conditions Artley, my grandmother, can defeat COVID-19, then it's looking good for the rest of the world. All right? And I love Gramps. Gramps, it, Grams, I should say Grams. You can't call her Gramps because, you know, not Grandpa. The pandy's still at large. We still have to stay in the house. We can't go outside and do anything. We have to deal with our kids. I don't have kids. I feel bad for people who do. I have to deal with my wife. She has to deal with me, all right? Literally every day she gets mad at me now, way more than she used to. Why is that? Because she has to deal with me all day, every day. There's no eight hours where you don't have to deal with me. No, you're dealing with me all 24 hours of the whole day, every day for months. Is she going to try to divorce me? Maybe. All right. I don't know. I don't know what she's going to try to do. She might be talking to a lawyer right now while I'm recording this. I don't know. And that's simply the facts. Okay. Welcome to the show. Episode 77 featuring the great Dr. Maura McLaughlin. Thank you for tuning in. Maura is a professor of physics and astronomy at West Virginia University. She is a expert in all things pulsars and all things pulsar timing and she's working with the nanograv collaboration to try to detect gravitational waves and we talk at length about that listen man if you're not interested in pulsars if you're listening to this right now and you don't care about pulsars you are a crazy person okay pulsars are maybe maybe the most interesting thing in all of all of the universe all right you have the most dense material that we know to exist here's the cool thing we don't even know what it is we can't even describe the properties of the material that makes up a pulsar it's a mystery but what we do know is that they spin and they spin incredibly fast and when they spin they emit beams of radiation along their poles and those poles sweep across the earth and we detect them and not only do we detect them but we detect them in some cases once every three milliseconds all right imagine that imagine a star the mass of the sun packed into a tiny little ball that is maybe 10 kilometers maybe 10 kilometers in diameter spinning thousands of times per minute all right think about that picture it are you picturing it are you imagining it thank you for tuning in i appreciate you guys please support the podcast join the mailing list uh state the state of the universe.com follow us on facebook instagram twitter youtube actually the youtube is undergoing an overhaul which will be finished in a little bit when i move studios next week so the youtube is actually going to seem radio silent but that's because big things are coming down the pipeline coming down the pipeline down the half pipe and it's going to be coming back up the other side and it's going to probably do like a nine a 900 like tony hawk did in 1999 and that's just how we roll that's how we roll to State of the Universe. That's how we've always rolled at State of the Universe. That's how we do it. Rate the show five stars. Please rate the show five stars. If you have an iPhone and you don't click the five star button, I cannot have you listening anymore. I need you to tune out. I need you to shut your phone. I need you to throw your phone into the highway. If you have an iPhone and you didn't click the five star review button and write, this is a grade A podcast, grade A podcast, grade A, not B. We didn't get B's. The semester is over. All right, for all, the, all you college kids out there, you know this is the time where the semester ends. 
and guess what? The grades are in. And it turns out that the State of the Universe got an A. Because of course it did. Because this is a grade A podcast. Now either you take your iPhone out of your pocket, you open up iTunes, you click the five-star button on the State of the Universe, or you throw your phone into the highway. And those are your two choices, all right? Sometimes in life, we are faced with two choices. And one of them is you rate the show five stars, and the other is that you take your phone and you throw it into the interstate, all right? And so with that being said, enjoy the episode. Yeah, West Virginia was the last place to get hit, right? Yeah, well, I mean, supposedly, but I think it's extremely, we had very few tests. It's still extremely difficult to get tested here. So I don't know how much to put, how much stock to put in that. I mean, yeah. I think um, there were lots of sick people that couldn't get tests. So yeah, who fair enough. we're certainly not a hotbed like New York is, that's for sure. I know. New York is, it's scaring me. I'm afraid every night I go to bed, I got a little tickle in my throat. And I'm like, well, here we go. We got yeah. it. Yeah. Anyhow, we're not here to talk about coronavirus, thankfully. That's all anyone's talking about because yeah. it's on on the psyche. We're here to talk about pulsars. I had you on the show before, but since the, I think you were episode 17, which is insane. We're, you're going to be like 77 now. Cool. So that's that's a pretty lot. cool. That's great. And so we should probably start with the basics. Okay. You work, you primarily do your work with nanograph. All right. And your goal is to detect gravitational waves. So we should start there. What is a gravitational wave? People probably have heard LIGO in the news. People have heard gravitational waves in the news, but they might not have a conceptual idea of what that actually means. Like what, what is it? Can you break yeah, it down for so, us? Please? Yeah. So gravitational waves are a prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity. And this theory of general relativity um, tells us that massive objects like ourselves or the earth or the sun or a black hole, um, distort space-time. They change the shape of space-time. Um, and so you can picture like a, you know, a, a sheet with like a ball in the middle. And um, that's sort of what the earth does to space-time. We cause the actual shape of space and time to curve. Um, this is a very abstract concept. Um, but it's been proven like in our solar system, we even need this theory um, to make, you know, GPS work accurately. So this is a really important concept, which has been proven time and time again. Um, now imagine, you know, you have an object um, like the Earth or the Sun or a black hole that's distorting space time. And you have another object um, that's orbiting that object. So you have two objects moving in space time. They're going to cause space time to ripple. Um, much like, you know, when you throw a rock in a pond, ripples emanate out from that rock. Um, these two objects orbiting each other cause ripples in space-time that emanate out from the objects. And these ripples in space-time are called gravitational waves. Um, and they're a fundamental prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity. Um, they carry energy from the objects. So if you have a system of stars orbiting each other that are emitting gravitational waves, they're going to get closer and closer and closer together. Um, because they're losing energy due to these gravitational waves. And eventually they're going to merge. Um, they're going to smash into each other because they've lost so much energy due to gravitational wave emission. And the other thing that gravitational waves do, in addition to carry energy away from objects, is they affect the light travel times between objects, right? So if a gravitational wave would pass between me here in Morgantown um, and you there in Rochester, um, the distance between us would change and the light travel time between us would change due to this gravitational wave passing. And it's this light travel time change, um, which has enabled them to be detected um, with LIGO. 
How many times? I, I have to ask. How many times do you think you've said that? Let that answer the question. What is a gravitational wave? Oh, like a hundred, probably. A <laughs> hundred. You're gonna. You're gonna hit like a thousand by the time your career is over. Yeah, I wish there was an easier way to explain it. It's such an abstract concept. Yeah. Well, that's um, what's amazing to me is that it's it's an incredibly abstract concept. Yet it has managed to secure over a probably over one and a half billion dollars in funding from governing science bodies nsf that's type of thing yep it's big science and it's interesting to me because i don't know i get the sense that the harder a concept is to explain the harder it is to convince people it's important right do you do you feel that way i feel that way generally um somehow though black holes and gravitational waves and all that kind of stuff seem exempt from that rule i mean i think even little kids love listening to things like black holes and even just words of general relativity. And I, I think some of this is like the Einstein kitsch. Everyone knows about Einstein and because right. it's attached to his name, people like it and think it's super cool. Um, and I also think now that gravitational waves have been detected, of course, the game is totally different. Um, we know that they're there. We can look at these instruments that we can understand, you know, these long vacuum tubes on the ground with lasers and things that we can sort of grasp. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think now there's even tons more interest than there was, you know, before, um, in gravitational waves. Yeah, I think so too. It's, it's blowing up. It's fascinating. And I'm getting into it actually. So, um, I'm fascinated. It's, it's the new paradigm in all of astrophysics. I think, I think it will be at like the forefront of everything we do for the next 10 years. And beyond, but I mean, like, it will really be a focus over the next 10 years. Mm-hmm. Maybe longer. Um, now, nanograph. It's different than LIGO. You mentioned LIGO. You mentioned these uh, lasers on the ground, and we're trying to detect small perturbations in them. Um, it's stuff we've go- gone over in pretty in-depth on the show before. But can you explain nanograph? What, is, what are you trying to do with nanograph that is so much different than the way LIGO works? Yeah, so the basic concept of nanograph is very similar to LIGO. Um, Instead of using lasers to measure changes in light travel time due to gravitational waves, we're using the pulses of pulsars. So we have natural clocks in space called pulsars. We're monitoring the arrival times of the pulses, and we're looking for very small perturbations in those arrival times due to gravitational waves passing between the Earth and the pulsar, and changing that light travel time um, between the Earth and the pulsar. So it's it's kind of the same concept as LIGO. Our arms are much longer. They're like, you know, thousands of light years as opposed to four kilometers. Our masses are way bigger. They're like one and a half times the mass of the sun as opposed to, you know, kilograms at the end of the LIGO arms. Um, but the general physical concept is is basically the same. Yeah, and people can just sort of grasp how LIGO has to be so sensitive. They can grasp grasp the reason an earthquake, say, would be a bad thing. They can understand why a truck driving by might be a bad thing. Um, You can sort of get it when you're talking about lasers on the ground. And when you extrapolate that to space, it makes the problem seem insurmountable, right? It makes you say, okay, fine, these, these pulsars are very, very precise clocks. But how can you measure them so precisely over the course of years or decades without anything interfering because there's 
stuff in space. There's stuff that becomes between you and a pulsar. There's the atmosphere. It seems like a very insurmountable problem. Yeah, I mean, the first thing I'll point out is that we don't need to be as precise as LIGO. So LIGO is measuring very short wavelength gravitational waves. And so they need accuracies of like an atomic nuclei scale, right? Right. Um, the wavelengths that we're searching for are much, much longer. So we actually don't need to have accuracies in light travel times of like an atomic nuclei scale. We don't need to achieve that because we're looking at like much longer wavelength gravitational waves. Um, so that's good. Um, we could never measure the precisions that LIGO measures with pulsars. It's just not possible. Um, there are, however, a lot of challenges. You know, our pulses are emitted from an object that we can't like fiddle with. We can't adjust the rotation of a pulsar to make it like more accurate. Um, they travel through space. There's gas in space. There's dust in space. Um, they're detected here on Earth by a radio telescope that's not perfect. <laughs> you know, it's it's uh, subject to seismic noise and the signals traveling through lots of different cables and digitizers and all this stuff. So all of these things add noise um, to the system. And really what we have to hang our hats on is that all those other kinds of noise look different um, from the signal that we expect due to gravitational waves. Um, so for instance, you know, the perturbations due to the signal traveling through the interstellar medium, like the gas in space, that has a very specific radio frequency dependence. Um, you know, the effect will be greater at lower radio frequencies. And so we can search for delays that have some dependence on radio frequency. And we know those aren't gravitational waves. So even if they're like really big, we can at least say, well, that's not the gravitational wave signature. So we can subtract that out of our data. We can put that in this pile over here, right? So even mm -hmm. if we have the perturbations, they look different from gravitational wave perturbations. And we can tell that. Um, other kinds of perturbations, you know, for instance, um, we could have a mistake, like say a clock at the observatory is incorrect or someone like changes the length of a cable that causes the signals to be delayed a tiny bit, something like that. Um, those things could happen in our data also. Um, but that's going to affect all the pulsars in the same way. Whereas for the gravitational wave signature, we expect to see a very specific correlation among all the pulsars in the sky that's like exactly predicted by general relativity. It's something called a quadrupolar correlation. Um, and there's really no way to make that kind of spatial correlation except for a gravitational wave signature. So there's this, you know, very specific correlated signature among all the pulsars we're looking for that just doesn't look like any of the other sources of noise. And so of course we want to like beat down all the other sources of noise and understand them as much as possible. Um, but even if we can't completely get rid of them, um, that's going to look different from a gravitational wave signature. I see. I'm curious how this has evolved over the course of your career. Um, when I had Ray Weiss on the show, and we were talking about LIGO, he was telling me that in the 80s and the 90s, in terms of, you know, ground-based interferometers to detect gravitational waves, nobody believed that they could work. Uh, the NSF would essentially laugh at him, um, you know, and, and say, we're not going to fund a project that is going to cost hundreds of millions of dollars just to detect something that we don't even know will be there. Um, how did how does that factor into pulsar timing? Do you did you encounter a lot of that uh, as you progressed through your career? Do you encounter it now, where people say you're not, you're just not, this isn't going to happen? I think 
there's been um, various waves. Like I think when I first got into pulsars, this was sort of a pipe dream. And the general feeling was this is a cool idea, but we're never going to have the timing precision necessary to do it. So I would say like 20 years ago, that was sort of the general perception was like, this is really cool, but you know, it's just out there. We're never going to have enough millisecond pulsars or have the precisions needed. Um, and then things kind of evolved. Um, there were a couple important papers written, which said, hey, you just need like 20 pulsars with, you know, 100 nanosecond precision, job done, you're going to make a detection. And so then I think we went through a phase of like, oh, this is easy. We're five years from detection. This is going to be great. We've got mm-hmm. it all sorted out. And what um, year would that have been, do you think? That was maybe a decade ago. I think okay. we, were, we were maybe a little over optimistic. We were mm-hmm. like, you know, this is easy. The requirements are simple. Um, we're so awesome. We've got it all figured out. You know, we're going to make a detection really soon. And then I think we kind of swung a little bit back because we started learning more about all the very important noise effects um, that we need to deal with, right? We realized that um, the interstellar medium is a huge deal and we didn't understand it well enough. Um, We realized that lots of these millisecond pulsars have intrinsic spin noise that could prohibit them from being used in our timing array. Um, Just a few years ago, we realized planetary ephemerides weren't accurate enough. And so we kind of swung back to, wow, this actually is a really hard problem. Um, there's lots of things we need to address first. And now I think we're in a state where we actually do understand the issues. Like we've been confronted with all the difficulties. Um, we have a path forward though to deal with them. And I think once again, we think that detection is on the horizon, but from a more informative point than like a decade ago, <laughs> you know, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. and not because we're naive, because, but because we've really just thought about things um, very carefully now. What would you say in the past, let's say, uh, 10 years, was there a point where, like, morale was so low? Like, was there one thing that you found out you were like, oh, my God, this is affecting the signal? And it it killed morale to the point where um, it really brought down some people's perceptions of the feasibility of the project? There's been a couple times like this. I mean, I think maybe sort of a decade ago when we started coming out of the super optimistic phase. Um, some people were saying we would never make a detection because of intrinsic pulsar spin noise. And there were some studies done, um, not on millisecond pulsars generally, but other pulsars that show that the spin noise had this very steep red spectrum, steeper than the gravitational waves. And if that existed for millisecond pulsars, we would never, never make a detection. And that was pretty depressing. Um, but then we started exploring the noise in millisecond pulsars more, and we realized it's actually not a problem for most millisecond pulsars. And so that was good. And then we had another kind of disheartening moment a few years ago when we realized these planetary ephemerides um, were causing correlations in our data um, that looked like gravitational waves. Um, and that was very disheartening. Can you explain, uh, can you break that down for people what that means? Yeah. So in order to detect gravitational waves from pulsars, we need to remove all the other things that affect the time of arrival of radio pulses. Um, and one of those things is the motion of the Earth around the sun, right? So as the earth goes around the sun, the pulses will arrive earlier and later and earlier and later on that year-long path around the sun, so with a year-long period. And in order to correct for that, we need to know where all the planets in the solar system are at any time and what their masses are. And this is called a planetary ephemeris. This is a model that's put out um, by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Um, and so we take this model, we use it to correct for that effect, 
And then we searched for gravitational waves in those corrected pulse times of arrival. And we realized a few years ago that we were seeing a correlated signature in the data um, because these ephemerides weren't accurate enough. They weren't doing this correction accurately enough. Um, and that was very worrying um, because, well, we couldn't detect gravitational waves if we didn't find a way out of this, right? We really need to apply this correction. Um, but we did. So now we have a new method which basically fits for that correction at the same time as fitting for the gravitational wave signature. Um, and so now we've got past that, you know, but that was a little worrying. I think we had about a year where we really were pretty dismayed um, over the inaccuracy of the models and we weren't, you know, quite sure how we were going to get around it. Um, but, but we did, we got through it. And so now what, I think. What does a JPL use that data for? It already existed right before you needed it, we'll say. Yeah. What, what is I mean, the use? Well, they need this for spacecraft missions. So if they want to fly a spacecraft to Mars or Jupiter or the yeah. moon or, you know, a close, close passage of the sun, um, they need these ephemeris to make sure their spacecraft can get where it needs to go. Yeah, that, that's what I, I figured. And it, it's, um, it was interesting to me that they were not as accurate as you needed them to be. And I wondered if that had any effect on their own uh, precision. And I assume not because yeah, I we mean, would have heard about it. But Yeah, I mean, it does, of course, you know, affect their precision, but they really don't need more precision than right. they really have. So, like, they're perfectly happy with knowing where Jupiter is to 100 meter accuracy. Like, that's fine for them. Mm-hmm. Once they get to within 100 meters, um, all sorts of other things like winds and atmospheres and things like that are going to... Um, perturb a spacecraft and they they don't really need to know where Jupiter is to a meter accuracy. Um, Whereas we actually need more accuracy for our experiment, right? If we want to do kind of, you know, nanosecond precision, precision timing, we need meters of of accuracy, not hundred meters. Um, And so it it was mostly just a mismatch between their requirements and our requirements. Our requirements are now stricter than theirs. I see. Now, how many pulsars do you have in the array? Let me interject before you even answer that, Maura. I wonder, I do you have this issue? I, maybe you, you've never encountered it. But I have an issue where it's pretty easy, I think, for you to take something you know really well and to um, explain it to other people in a simpler way. And obviously, you've already proven your ability to do that here. But one thing I think is really, really hard is to do the the opposite which is to take something you already know and then ask a question about it as if you don't know it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what I have to do when I talk to certain people in fields that I already know answers to. And it, it feels so... I, I have this like urge in my head to go, Maura, you know I know this, right? Like, I'm not <laughs> this stupid. I, I always want to do that because, yeah. uh, I don't know, it's it's a weird thing that I encounter. Yeah. Yep. I know. It is weird. Yeah. Anyhow, um, Nanograph has how many pulsars in the in the array? So right now we are timing about eighty pulsars. I think the most recent number was seventy nine. Last I checked. Yeah. Um, and how many are in the sky? How many pulsars do, are in the sky? Do we know that? Well, detected pulsars. So yeah. yeah, yeah. So there are almost three thousand pulsars in the sky. Um, about 10% of them are what we call millisecond pulsars. So pulsars with short enough spin periods to be possibly useful for mm-hmm. gravitational detection. Um, so, you know, roughly a third to a quarter of them 
are being timed by Nanograv at the moment. And that means you're pretty selective, right? You yeah. you have some criteria by which you look at a pulsar and you say, that's a good pulsar or no, 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 that's a terrible pulsar. We can't use that one. What mm -hmm. is that criteria? Well, there's a few of them. I mean, the most basic one, obviously, is we, we need to be able to see it. So we use telescopes in the Northern Hemisphere. Our primary telescopes are Arecibo in Puerto Rico and Green Bank in West Virginia. So some pulsars are just out from the get-go um, because they're only visible from the Southern, southern Hemisphere. Um, there are other criteria, though. Uh, so we want pulsars to basically be good timers. So, you know, we need to be able to time them with enough precision to be useful. Um, some pulsars are just too faint, right? They're just like very weak sources. We're never going to get enough just signal from them to be really good timers. Um, some pulsars are too distant. Um, they could be lying like in the galactic plane behind a lot of gas. Um, that scatters their signals or makes the interstellar medium effects just difficult to correct for. Um, some of them are in really messy binary systems. So most of these millisecond pulsars have white dwarf companions, but some of them have companions um, that have winds um, or that are being like ablated. So there's like a wind coming off of the companion and that eclipses the pulsar signal sometimes um, and just makes the timing really messy. And we don't want to deal with those. Um, so there's lots of things that would cause us to like throw a pulsar out of the array. How much effort has to go into when you, let's say a new pulsar is discovered in a new part of the sky. It's a millisecond pulsar. And how much effort does the group have to put in, the collaboration have to put into answering the question, is that a good pulsar? Quite a lot. I mean, so usually we don't do the initial timing. So the group that discovers the pulsar will do the initial timing. Um, and, um, you know, so often we don't do that step. We'll look at like a paper um, published by the discovery group um, to see how the timing looks. Um, but then even after that, you know, it might look okay. But then we need to put it into our nanograph program and observe it like with our backends and with our um, you know, frequencies and all, all the sort of specifics of our observational setup. And often it'll take six months to a year for us to really determine like whether a pulsar is going to be good or not. Um, some pulsars have like long timescale noise that might not be apparent after only like a couple months of observing. It might only be after a year that we realize like, oh, wow, you know, this noise is just too much um, for us to include in the array. Um, yeah, so sometimes it takes a little bit of time. We've observed some pulsars for years and then decided to drop them. Um, we've picked up pulsars that people found 20 years ago and that weren't good timers then, but that we've discovered are good timers actually when we observe them with our better instruments and backends. So it's so, a constant, like oh, tweaking source list. What's like a, an example of one that you, you I, I don't know if you'll be able to recall, um, but what's an example of one that you, you had in the array and some time went by and, and you discovered a phenomenon and you said, no, wait, maybe this isn't a good candidate after all. Well, actually, one of the most famous pulsars um, is a pulsar called 1937 plus 21. It's the first millisecond pulsar ever found. And it looks great. If you look at it on like just one day, it's very bright. You can measure the times of arrival of its pulses with very, very high precision. But if you look at it over like years to five years to 10 year long time spans, it shows an incredible amount of noise. Like the TOAs just wander mm -hmm. um, and it's really, really noisy. So even though it looked really bright, it is not a good pulsar to include 
in our stochastic background analysis um, because of this really high level of red noise in the data. So we do not include it in that analysis, even though it's it's super bright. Um, and you'd think naively it would be a really great pulsar. I see. So you said stochastic background, but I don't think we touched on that yet. Um, yeah. So what do we, you mean by that? We look for like a couple different kinds of gravitational wave signatures in our data. Um, the part, the one that most people think of is like a signal like that LIGO detected. So one source, two black holes merging, and there's a, you know, a short duration gravitational wave event, just like a, a single source. That's one kind of source. Um, and we look for those. So we look for what are called um, individual sources or continuous wave sources is what we call them. And so those are like one pair of black holes that are orbiting each other. You would call that an individual source or in, in gravitational wave parlance, you'd call that a continuous wave source. Um, now, we look for those single sources, but the thing that we think we're gonna detect first is actually something called a stochastic background. And so what this is, is this is the total signal from like all the binaries in the universe, all those black hole binaries that are in the process of merging they all add up together to form this background gravitational wave signature. And so basically this would not look like, you know, when, when you, people looked at LIGO data, you see this like very precise waveform, right? Due to these two black holes merging. The right. stochastic background won't have a precise signature like that. It'll basically just look like noise in your data. Um, just another source of noise in the data, um, but due to gravitational waves. Um, and the way that we would know is due to gravitational waves and not like some other source of noise is because we would see this very special sky correlation um, that really is only predicted by gravitational waves. But in any one pulsar, this background will just look like excess noise in the pulsar times of arrival. So it'll be like a very different kind of detection than the LIGO detections where there was this like, you know, sort of very clear to the eye um, signature that you could map to a particular source. So that's what makes it so important to have an array of sort of lasers, if you will, than to just have an, uh, two. Exactly. Yeah. We would never believe a detection of the stochastic background if we only saw it in one pulsar or even only two or three pulsars. We need a number of pulsars so we can really probe this correlated signature among the whole array. That's super important. It also, so some of the analysis you've done to this point, the fact that you haven't detected gravitational waves yet using nanograv implies something important, right? It imp it puts some upper limits on the types of black holes that might be in the nearby universe. Can you can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah, so this is really exciting, actually. I mean, obviously, a detection is the most exciting thing. It would be cool if we actually detected gravitational waves, and I think we will soon. Um, but we've had a lot of very exciting results, even without making a detection. Um, our last upper limit on the gravitational wave background um, is actually below the level of signal that lots of models predict. Um, so let me step back just a little bit and just um, say that the signature that we expect to see is due to very massive black holes at the cores of galaxies that are in the process of merging. Um, and so in order to predict like the brightness of the signature, we need to understand like how many galaxies have a black hole at their core. Um, how many galaxies have merged in the history of the universe? What's the time scale for that merger? Like what kind of astrophysics comes into that merger? And so then we measure a number, we set an upper limit, and we can compare that number 
to the signal strength predicted by all these different models. Um, and that's actually really interesting because the number that we're at now actually rules out like a lot of viable models for how galaxies form and evolve and merge. So even though we haven't made a detection, we're already doing astrophysics. Like we're able to place really interesting constraints on on how galaxies come together. Yeah, it, it is fascinating. Um, it's something that that I don't think, sometimes I think stuff, science like that doesn't get enough appreciation. Um, it, like upper limits, right? I don't know if they ever get the appreciation that a LIGO waveform will. Do you actually fear that in general? Do you fear that like, because what we talked about earlier, which is that in general, complicated procedures are tend to tend to be um, less easy to convince someone to fund. Do you think the same is true for discovery? Do you think the fact that LIGO gets these beautiful waveforms out of two tiny, we'll call them tiny, black holes or neutron stars merging, do you think that will make, um, let's say, the general public more interested than than trying to explain like correlations on different parts of the sky and how we see this signature and all the pulsar? Do, do, do you think that there will be uh, less excitement in this realm? A little bit. So I think the stochastic background detection is going to be harder to communicate to people. Right. Um, because you really can't see it. Like you can't look at the, the data from a pulsar and see this signature in there. It's a very difficult thing to map to, to the actual physics of what's going on. So what our detection will look like will be a correlation curve. So we'll be looking at like correlation on the y-axis versus like the angular separation between pulsars on the x-axis. And it's going to look like this quadrupolar signature. Um, and that's very abstract. So I think to like the general public um, or even educated scientists in other fields, like that's mm -hmm. not a, you can't look at that immediately. Like you can look at the LIGO waveforms and you can see like, oh, that's the moment where the black holes smashed into each other. <laughs> you know, you can actually see the signal growing and the ripples and Ours is not going to be like that. Ours is going to be a very statistical detection. And in fact, when we first think we have a signature in our data, you probably won't even by eye see it in the correlation curve. Like it's going to be like, um, you know, we'll, we'll be talking about Bayes factors, right? Like, mm -hmm. so, so we'll, really statistical terms. And this is actually something I thought about a lot because I'm really passionate about communicating science to the general public, to high school students, you know, to middle school students. And I thought a lot about like, how are we going to convince them that we have this signature in our data um, when we don't have something like a single galaxy, we can give them a picture of and say, hey, it's coming from this galaxy, this many light years away. It's just this very statistical picture and detection. Um, and I don't know, I have a really good answer for that. I mean, I think um, we can make little cartoons that sort of sort of show pulsars bobbing in the sea of gravitational waves and show how this produces this expected correlation. But I think until we have like a single source detection, which should happen, um, you know, sometime over the next decade, um, you know, it might be a little bit hard to, to really get the public understanding what it is that we're seeing. Yeah. When, when you're finally able to, this is a, this might be a pipe dream, but I think it would be awesome if, um, as nanograv gets more sensitive and is able to begin detecting single uh, sources, so you know binary black holes at the center of galaxies, billion solar masses. Meanwhile, the Event Horizon Telescope is getting better. Um, 
if you're able to to do a multi-messenger astrophysics, well, I guess you'd be working in radio on both. I don't know if you multi-messenger then, but um, you get the point. Uh, where you're actually able to say, look, there's binary black holes over there, and the Event Horizon Telescope can say, wait, 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 maybe we could look at those binary black holes in spiraling. Um, that would be the thing that would would just shut LIGO up. They couldn't even compete. They could go away. <laughs> yeah, that would be cool. Um, I doubt, though, the sources that we're going to detect. I don't think EHT... And nanograv are likely to have an overlap. I know. That's why I said pipe dream, unfortunately. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> pipe dream. But I do think at some point we're going to detect gravitational waves from a single source. Um, you know, so this may be two galaxies merging um, in, you know, a well-known galaxy cluster, for instance. And we're going to be able to electromagnetically observe that merging system and look for electromagnetic signatures, right? So like, I don't know, spectral line signatures or jets and things like this. And then I think it'll really become real because we'll be able to map our gravitational wave observations to that electromagnetic source and electromagnetic signature. Um, And I think there's a lot of advantages actually to what we're doing versus LIGO once we get to that stage, because our objects, you know, we're not detecting mergers, we're detecting binaries that are still in the process of merging. So we can follow them with gravitational waves and in the radio or x-ray, you know, or optical light um, for many years, right? So observe these sources and watch their evolution. And I think that's going to be super exciting and really, really interesting. And I think that'll appeal to the public once we can do that. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I think a lot of the times um, you can, you can definitely come up with clever ways to describe things to people, right? Um, And it, it might be in the form of something like this because it's going to be dense it's going to be sort of tough to explain tough to break down um but people have shown that they're pretty uh, what's the word that they're pretty open to being taught uh, especially online you know maybe your average person when you go to starbucks well you can't now because coronavirus thank you um but you know on an on an average day if you go out maybe the average person isn't doesn't care about learning how nanograv works at a very statistical level. They don't want to sit down and watch like a 30-minute description of how that might work. But in the aggregate, if using the internet, you can assemble probably millions of people who are interested enough in pulsars, black holes, not necessarily physicists, not necessarily astronomers, not even scientists, just ordinary people. You could assemble enough of them to care. And I think that that is the, the demographic you'll see really stick out. Yeah, I mean, we get a lot of good reactions to our press releases with upper limits, um, mm-hmm. and they're not even detections, you know, but we've got like pretty good press. We have a lot of people at our public lectures. I think people like pulsars. I mean, pulsars are super cool. So even though this yeah. test background aspect maybe is a little bit esoteric, I think there's lots of other really awesome, cool things about our project that keep people interested. Yeah. Why, why do you think pulsars are so, because pulsar, it's so weird. Like, um, I would put black holes pulsars and supernovae up there with public excitement at the same level as like exploration of the moon like people love black hole if i put the word black hole in a title of a podcast it gets like double the downloads people just love to see it yep and i'm just gonna start inserting it in every title somehow (laughs) um but i i uh am interested in neutron stars too like you are and and not just 
pulsars, the, the fundamental features of neutron stars themselves. And there's still a lot that we have to learn about neutron stars. And one of the things is, what is their equation of state? In other words, what is the thing that actually makes them up? Uh, what is the interior of these these things like? And how can we physically model them or physically simulate them well? And part of the reason we don't have a good answer to that is because in order to get a great answer to that, we need to know some of the masses and some of the radii of neutron stars. And today, even though we can detect pulsars pretty well, because they're very easy to see in the radio, we haven't yet been able to get good, um, what's the word, data on their mass and their radii. And because of that, we understand very little about sort of their theoretical internal structure. I'm curious if that has any impact on nanograv. Yeah, what a good question. Um, so I guess there, I'd answer it in two ways. I would say that um, there is like noise in our data that we call intrinsic spin noise. Um, and this noise is due to the fact that a neutron star is not a perfect body. It's not a perfect rotator. And that's because it has like superfluid in the core and it's got this crust and the superfluid transfers angular momentum to the crust and different equations of state. So like different models for what neutron stars are made of um, do have different expected levels of noise, right? Um, so what the neutron star is made of does affect the noise that we see in our data. Um, so that would be the first part of my answer. I would also say, though, that like, we don't really care what it's made of as long as we can characterize it, right? So like, we can measure this level of noise, and we can characterize it, we can include it in our modeling. And that's good enough, like, knowing whether there are quarks or bosons or, you know, whatever, that doesn't really matter so much, we can we can still characterize the noise. But the flip side um, is that another thing that we can do with nanograv is measure pulsar masses very accurately. So one of the parameters that comes out of our timing are the masses of pulsars um, and their companion stars if they're in binaries. And so we actually are placing constraints on these equations of state. And this is sort of like a separate project, like this isn't helping us detect gravitational waves better, but it's something that we sort of get for free out of our project. And so that's exciting. One of our like most well-cited nanograv papers is not actually one of our gravitational wave limit papers. It's um, a measurement of the most massive neutron star ever measured, um, which came out of our nanograv timing. And how massive is that for people listening? So it's over 2.1 solar masses. Um, so the most massive neutron star measured before that was about two solar masses, exactly. Um, and so this one is about 2.1. It still has a pretty big error bar. Um, so we need, we need to keep timing it to sort of really place like very good constraints, which is why I'm saying about 2.1. We don't know whether it's 2.05 or 2.15. Um, so we don't know if it's just a little bit more massive than the previous record holder or way more massive. Um, but it's challenging some of these equations of state models. Like some of them struggle to predict neutron stars that have masses higher than two times the mass of the sun. Yeah, and there's a ton of them in the literature. Um, if yeah. people are interested, you can find dozens of potential models of the interior of neutron stars. And until we have enough parameters, masses, radii, to rule them out, then we're kind of stuck. Is that, is, is you mentioned earlier, like the internal structure, the actual atomic physics of what's going on inside of neutron stars. Um, I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I would say that that is not uh, 
in your field that you're working in right now. That's a, it's a co- sort of like a separate um, atomic quantum physics type problem. Does that yeah. is that something you're interested in that you want to pursue ever? I mean, I'm super interested in it from just an intellectual curiosity perspective. Like right. I would love to know what neutron stars are made of. I think that's a really interesting question. Um, personally, I don't see myself ever getting so involved into that field of research that I'm going to start deriving, you know, mass radius relationships for neutron stars based on nuclear physics and quantum physics, um, because that requires a very different skill set than what I have. And there's lots of people who are already really good at that, and they're doing that. Um, But I do think a big motivation, actually, for me, um, in timing pulsars is to try to place these kinds of constraints, because I would really like to know the answer to what neutron stars are made of. I think it's very interesting. And I also think it's like, um, you know, everyone wants their science to be important to people. And there's a really big community of like condensed matter physicists, people who really care about matter at the densest states, um, who, who just really care about this kind of science. So it kind of like makes our research just more interesting to a broader field of people. Like those are some of our most well-cited papers um, and cited by lots of people who aren't even astronomers um, who just care about these equations of state of dense matter. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious how many, like I noticed something about my own career and I'm very young in my career um, is that like the list of things I want to explore is growing exponentially and the list of things I can explore is like shrinking, right? So on your list of things you want to explore, how big has that list gotten? Oh, it's pretty big. Um, I think, though, as a professional astronomer, or really an academic of any sort, um, what you do explore is really driven by funding. Like, that's kind of the reality. So, you know, we're paid by the National Science Foundation um, to do a particular project. And most of my funding is from the Physics Frontier Center for Nanograv. Um, and so that kind of dictates that, you know, my research is going to be largely focused on gravitational wave detection with pulsars. Fortunately for me, that's like already such a huge field that there's tons of things I can work on within that general field. Um, and so I still feel like I have a, a lot of flexibility, you know, like I have a, a couple students looking at like interstellar medium effects. I have students who are working sort of at the end of the pipeline on the actual detection algorithms. I have students who are working on searching for pulsars to add to the array on like the front end of the pipeline. Um, So there's a ton of stuff within that sort of nanograph purview that one can work on. And it can actually be like a little overwhelming, (laughs) even within that one kind of research grant. Um, Mm -hmm. There's so much that, that one can do. When did you get, when did you realize like pulsars, neutron stars, this is the thing I want to spend my career studying? A long time ago, actually. I mean, I think um, I remember even being in high school and I read a lot of books about black holes and neutron stars and I just thought they were super cool. And then I was an undergraduate student at Penn State um, and I was looking for a research project and I ended up working with a faculty member there named Alex Wilson, who discovered the first extrasolar planets around a pulsar. And so I got to work on that project um, and that was it really. Like as an undergrad, I started doing pulsar timing. I got to go to Arecibo, the biggest telescope in the world in Puerto Rico and use that as an undergrad one summer. Um, and that was, that was it really. I just said, this is what I'm going to do forever. And so I went to grad school, um, to do pulsars and I've just like stuck with it ever since. 
Um, I'm curious if when you were in, in high school reading the, well, first off, what was the, what was like the book that motivated you? Well, it has like that one book. This is so trite because I think it's true for so many people, but um, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time yeah, was that's sort a of one. the book. Like I remember reading that in high school. It came out, I think right around the time I was in high school, just, just at right the, you know, just at the right time to kind of have a big influence on me. Um, yeah. yeah I think and, mine I was and, just, and just being like, wow. I of course read all of Carl Sagan's books and Cosmos had a big impact too, but that was like, you know, astronomy in general fascinated yeah. me after reading that. But Stephen Hawking's book was the one that really got me thinking about like the mathematics of black holes and space time and general relativity. Yeah. Um, and it, it just, I was just so fascinated after reading that. I remember reading that book and books like it, like books by like Brian Greene or something. Um, and they break it down for you in this way. I, I honestly, I remember being a senior in high school and reading a book like this and thinking if I could just like, I had no idea how astronomy worked, no idea how physics worked, no idea how any of it, like no idea how you actually solved a problem in science. And I just thought that all of these open questions that were being talked about in books like that by Stephen Hawking were like mathematical problems, like algebra problems that hadn't been solved yet. And I'm like, if I could just work my way up to where I could get to that algebra problem, um, then I could be the one to solve it. You know, I had no concept of the enormity of science in the way that it's done in the world because they make it seem so simple. Yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of why I liked A Brief History of Time because it made it really concrete. Like I could see, oh, you don't need to just be like the world's super genius to understand this stuff. There are actual equations and diagrams and like I could actually grasp it. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know if that's what you're getting at, but like that, that book sort of was kind of a watershed moment for me because I actually could read about all these abstract things and like understand it and see that it was within my grasp, you know? Yeah. No, I think what I'm getting is that when I was 17, I was dumb. That's kind of the, the <laughs> point I was making. Um, and I'm sure most 17 year olds can share in that sentiment. Um, but only in retrospect when you're seven. Dunk actually told me, uh, he, he, he said a quote last time he was on the podcast and I forget, it was like, youth is wasted on the young. Uh -huh. Maybe that's the quote. That is a fantastic quote. I think about that quote all the time. That's youth true. I'm always telling my three kids that. Yeah. Because when, man, I had so much energy. I, I mean, even now I have a decent amount of energy, but then I was like, I could focus on something for 18 hours unimpeded by any distraction. And now I can't like, I can't do 20 minutes. So I don't yeah. know. <laughs> Yeah, I'm telling my 14-year-old that all the time. Youth is wasted on the young. I love that. Um, so you got interested in this at a at a very young age. Do you think if you would have read, how did you like stumble upon astronomy books? I don't know. Um, As opposed to like a biology book or a chemistry book or something. I mean, I read everything. I just really like to read. Um, and um, astronomy just seemed really cool. I honestly don't remember. Like I just went through... Lots and lots of books. Um, I never was really into like the night sky. I wasn't the type of kid who had like my own telescope or anything like that. I just really liked to read. And I, I remember just reading lots of Isaac Asimov, like just science fiction and just being really into astronomy. Um, yeah, I never had a telescope either. I never, that's like a uh, something a lot of astronomers sort of uh, have in common is that they, yeah. they were amateurs. About, I I, what was that? 
I don't know anything about the night sky. I knew like a few constellations and that's about it. Like I like looking at it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah. I come to it from that perspective. And I didn't have parents or a role model who were like really into astronomy or anything. I just came to it just really independently, just from liking to to read. And I guess really from like science fiction more than science at first. Right. I, the reason I ask is because I was looking at some, I always try to look up some statistics um, that are in relation to what the person I'm interviewing does, but not necessarily, obviously there's no, there's probably no like Pew research statistics about what people know about pulsars. That's not something that anyone would actually try to ask the general public. But you know, one of the things I, that they do uh, have statistics on is why people became scientists. And I was looking at these statistics and like adding the numbers up on the reasons. And some of it's like, Oh, good role model. Um, uh, I don't know, interested in particular problem, et cetera. And I added the numbers up and they were like 60% out of a hundred. And then one of the categories was 40% didn't fit into like one of these bins. So 40% of scientists who went on to become PhD level scientists in all fields don't have like a clear definitive thing that pushed them into the field. And I think that's fascinating because I, when I think about my own like early science, um, f- flourishment if you will i i don't know why i picked up a book and started reading it like i have no no idea why i don't know it just i just and i was curious if you had one yeah not really it just sort of just sort of came to me i didn't have a great science teacher astronomy teacher any moment i can really think of it's just like a a natural evolution i think i always really liked math and i was good at math and so I was also kind of thinking like, well, I should probably do something that has that uses math and has something to do with math. But I didn't really like math all that much just as a, like an end to itself, you know? Yeah. What, what did science seem like as a career at that time? Like, did you think it was a feasible thing to get into? I didn't really know much about it, honestly. Um, I was just interested in it. And when I decided to go to college and major in it, I really didn't have any idea. Like I didn't really know much about grad school or career options. I just thought it sounded fun and interesting. And um, I didn't, didn't really think about it much from a practical perspective. Yeah. Um, how many bad careers do you think are out there that started with that exact sent- sentiment? Yeah, you got probably lucky, Maura. Yeah, you probably. Lucky. <laughs> <laughs> lucky, yeah. Yeah. No, uh, obviously you worked incredibly hard. Um, what, what do you think you would have been doing if you weren't an astronomer like if you if if someone had been in your ear and be like Maura don't do the Penn State astronomy physics thing this is a waste of your time you're not going to find a job um what do you think would have been like backup plan that's interesting um well I guess when I was an undergraduate I tooled with like a couple other majors the, I thought for a long time I wanted to be a veterinarian just okay. because I really liked animals um but then I spent a summer working at the SPCA and having to actually like put animals to sleep and dealing with that. And I was like, Oh, I don't know if I can handle this, you know? Um, But maybe, maybe I'd be a veterinarian. I don't know. I also really liked music. Um, So I thought about being a music major as an undergrad. I was an oboe player. Maybe I'd be an oboist. I don't know. Do you still play the oboe? I do actually. I I couldn't even tell you what an oboe is. (laughs) It's kind of like a clarinet, but with a double reed. Okay. Uh, Anyway, but yeah, I play the oboe in a community orchestra here, and I play in a, a woodwind trio um, with some friends. 
not seriously at all, just, you know, obviously for fun. Um, So maybe I'd be doing those things. I don't know. Or maybe I would have found another branch of physics or chemistry or biology. Um, Yeah, it's hard to say, isn't it? I don't know if I had got, if I had had a slightly different research experience as an undergrad, if I just happened to start working in a chemistry lab, then who knows? I think much of what we do is just really up to just these kind of small opportunities that present themselves and steer us down a particular path. Yeah. Well, the the reason I ask is because I, I have this own like weird theory about myself that I don't actually care about the problem that I'm solving Um, in the sense that, yes, I, I like pulsars. I like black holes. I like gravitational waves. That's all really fascinating. And, and I'm like super fascinated in it. But if it was like a really shitty environment and I didn't like the people I worked with and I didn't like um, a- any aspect of it and I wasn't enjoying myself, then the problem would not be important to me. So I think I've noticed about myself that like as a scientist, I can work on any scientific endeavor as long as the environment is is cool because I, I tend to just find the problem solving aspect to be like the fun part. Yeah, I think I feel similarly. That's interesting you say that. I feel like I would probably be very happy working in lots of other fields as long as I had like good colleagues and an interesting problem to work on. Um, I don't think the exact problem or the tools that I use are as important. Yeah, that's why I'm fascinated by people. And I'm sure you know people like this, but people who were like so driven on a particular endeavor in science and they've been working on it their whole career and you can just tell that they like wanted to do that when they were nine years old and they just never stopped that is fascinating to me because i don't have that gene whatever that is i don't have that yeah i don't think um i have that really either you and dunk should start a band (laughs) we do play together sometimes do you yeah we um we do some like guitar oboe kind of jazz, jazzy type stuff. It's kind of kind of odd, but fun. No one really expects an oboe and guitar to play together, but it's fun. That's okay. You you, you could be a, a sensation, an oboe <laughs> guitar sensation. Well, maybe, maybe someday. Yeah. We will leave Pulsar um, behind. Anyway, I want to transition and talking about the Pulsar Search Collaboratory because I'm fascinated in it. But it is fascinating to me that your version of the Pulsar Search Collaboratory in vet, in the veterinary world was putting dogs down. Let's uh, pay some <laughs> attention to that. Um, and it was important. It influenced your career, right? It um, was. Yeah. So things like that are important. So the Pulsar Search Collaboratory is something else you do that, that I am super um, happy with. I don't know the right word. I'm super ecstatic it exists, we'll say. Can you describe what it is? Yeah, sure. So this is a program that we've been doing for a long time now. I think we're in our 13th year. Um, And it is a program that involves high school students in searching for pulsars in data taken with the Green Bank Telescope. Um, And it started as a collaboration between basically Dunk and I and Sue Ann Heatherly um, down at Green Bank. Um, And the way it works is students are trained um, at Green Bank. We have like a summer camp, like a Pulsar camp at Green Bank. Um, And we also now have sort of transitioned to online training through the year so they can get solely trained online through um, recorded like Pulsar training sessions and they learn how to identify Pulsars and data taken from the telescope. 
And then they do us like a huge scientific service by looking through data on like possible pulsars um, that we've identified in our searches. And they learn how to discriminate pulsars from other things in the data, you know, like radio frequency interference that's human made um, or just like background noise. And so they classify these plots and help us find pulsars. Um, it's really fun. I mean, the students like it because they get to see like what it's really like to be a scientist. Um, they get to learn about like data analysis, um, computing, you know, physics, pulsars. Um, there's a lot of in-person interaction in addition to the online stuff. So we have the summer camp at Green Bank, which is like super fun. Plus, we have a capstone event here every May where the students come to WVU and they tour labs. They stay in the dorms for a couple of days. Um, they hear talks by faculty. They present their research. You know, they get posters on their research. Um, so that's the basic gist of the program. It's been funded by the National Science Foundation. And um, we've had like two grants now, um, you know, that have funded it from, from the NSF. Um, and it's a big part of our Nanograv outreach too. Like a lot of our Nanograv undergraduate students serve as mentors in the program, which is a really valuable experience for them. Um, grad students as well sometimes come and like help out at the camp or present some of these online lectures. Yeah, it's really fun. It's a really good program. Are you the first... Uh, is this the first group in the United States that you know of that does this sort of thing that takes high school students and incorporates them into science this way? I think so. So like there are lots and lots of programs, of course, that get high school students involved in research. Um, I think we might be the only group or I don't one of few groups, at least I don't know of any others where the high school students are like not just kind of playing the role of scientists or helping scientists, but they are like really doing the research. So the data that the students in the PSC look at, it's their data. Like professional astronomers don't look at it. No one else looks at it. Like grad students don't look at it. I don't look at it. It is the student's data. And so mm -hmm. they find a pulsar in that data. They are the first ones to find that pulsar. Um, no one else is going to find it. Um, they actually play a major role in like following up the discoveries you know, operating the telescope, like in all aspects of the project. And so I think that's pretty unique in that they're, they're really scientists. They're like really doing the work. They're not just like playing the role or pretending to be scientists or, you know, doing what a scientist might do. Like they're, they're actually doing it. And I think that's super cool. And I think that's why the students just really love the program. You know, that feeling of like really being um, the first one to find a new star and, and knowing that like it's, it's your data and it wouldn't have happened without you. Yeah, and they also make me feel self-conscious because they're getting papers published in high school. Making me <laughs> yeah, feel like I'm behind. It um, is pretty cool. Yeah. Um, so I'm, I would like if the NSF like instituted a pot of money that they gave to programs like this, where it wasn't just the, the Pulsar Search Collaboratory, but it could be other things in other fields and other sectors. I would love to see this implemented. And, you, you know, You've said it a hundred times before, and in all of the PSC publications and, and online stuff, you say say the same thing. You would love for this model to be adapted across the board by a bunch of people. But I now, of course, I'm not everywhere in the United States or the world at one time, so I, I can't say. But it it doesn't feel like this model, even though it's been successful for you, it doesn't feel like it's being um, sort of taken by other people. I don't know. Um, I don't know. I don't think it has been. I admit that I'm not fully in touch with like every single educational program out there in the world. 
Um, I think some of our colleagues involve students in pulsars, like they'll invite them to the telescope, they'll see how it works, they'll do like, you know, follow along for one observation. I don't think anyone else is going in the way that we're going with like really making them a part of the project. Um, I think it's because it's really hard. Like it's very time consuming to train students in order to do this work. Um, it requires like a lot of dedication and kind of person power, you know, to be able to mentor the students. Um, it also is hard sometimes I think for scientists to like give their data up. <laughs> right. So yeah. Um, when we first took this data, you know, it was hard for some of the people we collaborate with to be like, you know, that's fine. I'm not going to look at it. It can totally be for the students. Like that's hard to do, right. To give your data away to an educational, um, project in this way. And so I think many groups, whether in astronomy or some other field, um, just might not be happy doing that. Um, this, this project has evolved in a slightly different way though, whereas now the data that they're taking like is taken at Green Bank specifically for this project. So it's not like we're stealing data from a a survey that professional astronomers are doing. Like these data are now taken specifically for the students to look at, um, which I think is just a different model um, than most telescopes might have. Yes. And astronomy is also kind of separating itself from the pack in the sense that we don't really have a data problem anymore. Right. Yeah. In fact, we have the inverse problem. We have too much. So data. much data. So much data. Yeah. yeah. So that's another really good point. I could like, see how some fields, like a, uh, um, let's see, I don't know, biology or something, could struggle with actually giving students data because the data that they have might be important data that they know that they can get results from and they know that they could get publications from and and um, producing data at the scale that astronomy does. I don't think can be done in like a biological setting or a chemical setting. Yeah. It's tough. I think you're absolutely right. I think that um, we are very data rich. Yes. Um, I I think that there's this paper that sort of summarizes the the results of the Pulsar Search Collaboratory. And at the end, you cite a few, maybe not you in particular, but the group cites a few um, student feedback uh, quotes that I think are are really important. And I want to touch on some of them because I think that they're way more important for the entire field of science than just the PSC. Um, one of the one of the the question that you you ask the students is, what kind of support did you receive to prepare for the Pulsar Search Collaboratory Camp? So these students do research online or with their mentors um, for weeks or months ahead of time before they actually go to collect data. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Okay. And, yep. and one of the responses was, my family and friends supported me, but sadly, my school did not. I think that that is a very common thing in um, the United States of America's education system. I can't speak for everywhere else. But we definitely have a problem here with showing kids support for things like this. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Um, I think kids are like, they're really busy. (laughs) Like there's just so many things that, um, they have to do at school and so many programs that they can be involved in, um, that sometimes this kind of stuff is lost. Like it doesn't play into their GPA. It doesn't directly get them any awards or into college. Um, so I think, I don't know, it's just not valued so much in today's society, which is really sad. 
it's weird because I this is the problem with looking at metrics, I think, is if your goal as a school is to get all of your kids into a good college by giving them good scores on a standardized tests and good GPAs, I think that you're losing the point of education. Um, mm-hmm. I think that that is a failure as a system to actually understand what an education is supposed to do. And I think programs like this open up what education is supposed to be. It teaches you how to be a free-thinking human. Um, yeah. I, I had someone on the podcast yesterday, and we were talking about how machine learning and AI has done this very interesting thing to our culture, where now we look at everything as a boiled-down metric. We take in, like, 45 parameters, and we output a number. It's like, I don't know if you've ever seen Black Mirror, but there's a concept of a social score, which might exist in the future. Um, mm-hmm. which is have you seen black mirror i haven't actually <laughs> oh my god it's a fantastic sci-fi show fantastic every episode is different um it has no like follow-through on plot every single episode it's kind of like the x-files i guess um mm-hmm. but it's, it's fantastic uh but the point is we're moving in this scary direction i think it's very bad for us i don't i don't want to see us go there but where we are starting to look at people as metrics um, we take all the parameters in and we put out, we output a number on a normalized scale. That's not a way to do education. I don't think. Yeah, I agree. And I think one thing we've noticed is like the students in the program, um, it's really hard for them actually to learn how to like, just do like inquiry based science without having a set plan or like memorize this, do this. So like we bring them to green bank and we give them this 20 meter telescope, this small telescope. And we're like, here you go, figure this out. Um, here's a project. And they're like, what are we supposed to do? We don't understand. And we're like, yeah, just go figure it out. Spend the night, you know, here's the chart recorder. Um, take your data. And they're super overwhelmed because they're not used to just like having that sort of wide open plan without knowing exactly what they're doing and knowing what the answer is before they've started. Um, but then they get into it and then they absolutely love it. And we have to like drag them away from the telescope, you know, at 4am <laughs> because they've yeah. had, they've had so much fun being given the freedom to actually like really just be, be real scientists, you know? Yes. And, and I would argue that the reason you don't see all of the PSC kids go into science is because it's not actually the freedom of science they value. It's the freedom to do something on their own, not knowing the answers ahead of time, and just explore their own thoughts is is what they actually get out of it. And then they can take that and they can apply it to whatever they want to do in their whole life, their existence, and and do it well and use those qualities. Because even today, like if I get an assignment and and the directions are kind of vague, um, I still get that weird, like, it's ingrained in me. It's like, wait a minute, where's the bullet points that describe exactly what you want? Why don't you write down 12-point font? Am I supposed to use 11-point, 13-point? I'm confused. I don't know what to do. Um, so it's like it's built into my head. And it's v- the experiences like that are incredibly valuable, I think, for someone's um, growth as a human. Yeah, I agree. I agree. That's why we do it. It's very rewarding. Yes, I, I uh, have... Um, I would like to get involved in it. We can talk about that. Well, we'd love to have you involved. That'd be yeah. great. We'd would, like to have uh, more grad students helping out. It's really fun too. Yes, I, I imagine it's very fun. Um, it's something I'm really interested in. Unfortunately, though, there's there are some metrics that sort of um, work against you. And so one of the metrics I was looking at, and I'm curious how um, if, if the 
collaboration has put any effort into trying to address something like this. Obviously, this it's not your responsibility too. But but the the metric that I I know exists is um on a survey of kids that do stuff outside of the classroom, whether it be sports, extracurricular activities, band, whatever, um, in high income households, households like over seventy thousand dollars a year, uh, it's nearly forty percent of kids are doing extracurricular activities. That's a lot. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, in households less than twenty five thousand, uh, the number is less than seventeen percent. It's like fifteen percent. Yeah. So you have a real built in bias where not only do you have a tough time probably communicating with this demographic of kid in in more rural areas, poor areas. West Virginia is a great like region to contact those sorts of people. Um, but like rural West Virginia is some of the poorest America has to offer. Um, unfortunately it's, it's the truth. Um, but like, how do you reach out to that demographic and get them? That's a really good question. It's really hard. Um, so what we try to do is like, we try to start with teachers and recruiting like high school teachers to the program. And then we ask those teachers to recruit students and we tell them specifically like it'd be great if you can recruit students who may not otherwise have had experiences like this you know so we aim for like gender diversity first at all first of all we say like try to get an equal number of boys and girls you know yeah um um, we try to recruit teachers specifically at schools um that have a large percentage of kids on like free and reduced lunch you know which is a good metric of schools that are have many families below the poverty line Um, So we try to just get teachers from those schools and tell them to try to recruit kids um, who may not have had experiences like this. Mm -hmm. Um, We have a program called SPOD, which I think you're familiar with, where we train students to give talks in schools. So we have like a PSC talk. Um, So we'll have undergraduate students um, go to high schools and give this talk. And then they'll send a sign up sheet around where kids can like write their name if they're interested. And we try to get back in touch with them. Um, it's really hard though, cause we can't like individually meet with every single student. Um, and I'm sure there's a ton of students who we are missing, you know, because they haven't had, they don't have the confidence to think they can do it. They don't have the parental support. Um, so I think all we can do is make the program available, try to get to teachers, you know, to talk to those kids that we want to reach. And once we have kids come, you know, like occasionally kids will come to the camp and they'll say like, oh, my teacher recommended I come. I have no idea why I'm here. Like, this isn't my thing. Um, Just really be supportive and encouraging and give them the experiences, like the hands-on experiences that make them realize that like, wow, I actually can be a scientist, you know? And I think once you get them there to the camp and they actually are getting that like hands-on experience, working a telescope and looking at data, then everything changes, you know? That's how they get confidence and realize they can do these things. So we just need to somehow get them there. Yes. But it's still a big problem. Yeah, I think um, I don't. I don't think that just the NSF should get more things like this rolling. I think that this is a good model for how education should be done in general. Like th- this is something I would like to see. Like tenth grade, eleventh grade, twelfth grade. Devo- you could pack all of the courses that kids are taking into one semester. Like. August through December, you could teach them everything they need to know. Um, you you realistically don't need. And I think I might have mentioned this on the show before, but in my, I remember my psychology class when I was a junior in college. We just watched Modern Family. Like we would have one class a week, 
where we actually did something and then just movies the whole time. Nothing. We didn't do anything. Wow. And it was super common. Like I'm going to do that for my next um, stellar structure class I'm teaching in the fall. That sounds like it'd be a lot easier. Yeah, just one one lecture. Like just do one one every two weeks or something. You'll be good. And then just put on uh, put on something you want to watch. You'll have a chance to have some downtime. Watch like Game of Thrones or something. Sure. Relax. Yeah, sounds great. Yeah. And this it's like super common in, in schools because you just don't need that amount of time to teach kids the, the thing you need to teach them. Um, I don't I'm not an advocate of saying uh, let's just cut down the, the school year. I think the school year is valuable. The amount of time that kids spend in school is valuable, but you're not utilizing the time right. I think that you could use a model like the PSC as a way to say, OK, how do we actually teach kids to be independent? That's what we need to do. We need yeah. to teach kids to be decision making, independent little beings that can go off into the world and be confident and do whatever they want to do. Mm hmm. And I think it's great what you're doing. Is the yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's awesome. And I think I do wish that somehow we could bring it to even more kids. So we only have very limited resources. Um, so I think all we can hope for is like other scientists see it and hopefully try to start up similar programs. Yeah, I know there are these uh, organizations. I know they exist in the in the South because one of my friends got hired through them. But they're like a recruiting company for teachers that place them in really low-income rural schools. I wonder if you could uh, set up a relationship with one of these sort of um, uh, recruiting agencies to to say, okay, you're going to work at the school. Would you be interested in – before you even start, we'll, get, we'll like introduce you to it. That way you can sort of get, learn the ropes before you even get involved in, in the school year. Um, would you be interested in, in bringing this idea with you to that rural school? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so yeah, that's a great I, idea. I actually know a few people that have worked in the program that I could probably say, "Hey, oh, you wanna good. do really good. what?" That would be really good. Yeah, uh, I'll I'll see about doing that. Um, what what is the completely random question, Mora? I, I don't know why I thought about it. I thought about it because I asked uh, Doctor Mike Poland this the other week. He's a uh, the head of the Yellowstone Volcano Observatory. What's the worst talk you've ever given? Like, do you ever give a talk that was just so exceptionally bad that, like, when you think about it, you cringe? Oh, God. What kind of a question? Let's see. Is that a bad question? Uh, I don't know. Here, I'll tell you what his was, and then you'll think, oh, I never had anyone that bad. He had a talk where he had eaten something that he probably shouldn't have ate beforehand, and he had to leave the room in the middle of the talk and, and go to the bathroom. And um, <laughs> the problem was... The bathroom was outside, directly outside the room where the talk was in, where there were like 45 people in there. And um, he he was very audibly loud. <laughs> and um, when he came back, everyone knew what had happened. And so I don't think you could get Funny. much worse than that. Yeah, that's pretty bad. Um, I think like I can remember the first few colloquia I gave, like as a new faculty member were pretty bad because I just um, didn't know how to gauge like time. Like it's, yeah. so I remember like my, one of my very first colloquia I gave, I thought I had sort of the standard like 45, 50 minutes of slides. You know, you're supposed to do 45, 50 minutes talking, 10 per questions. And then yep. I got into the room and I was so nervous and I talked so quickly that I was done in like 20 minutes. Oh, and that's the I, worst. I looked at my watch. I'm like, oh my God. What, what's <laughs> like, worse though? 
people who do the 20 minute talk or people that do the hour and 20 minute talk? Uh, yeah, I didn't do that at least, but I still don't even know what happened. Like, I think I was just so nervous that I just talked a million miles a minute. Like I didn't record myself, so I can't watch it now and know what happened. But yeah. somehow I finished in half the time than I thought I would. And I don't even know if it made any sense. Like now that I look back at it, I'm like, I probably <laughs> Well, there were probably some people there, there, right? You could ask. I could ask them. Yeah, I could. I never actually circled back and found out like, hey, guys, was that really the worst talk you ever heard? Um, yep. <laughs> so out Do you until record them now? Your talks? Oh, I hate recording my talks. I hate listening to myself talk. I think Do, do you do it though ever? No, I don't. I should. It'd probably be a good experience, but I don't. Yeah, I think it's it's something that no one does, but I think if people did do it, it'd be super valuable. Yeah, I think um, but so. the, most people don't really care about giving, like, you know, it talks that are ten out of ten. Like a seven out of ten will do in most cases. Sure. Um, yeah, I think so. <laughs> but see, the the thing I do is, uh, I try to give incredibly good talks. Um, I don't know why. I I try to treat it like uh, I I don't know how to explain it. I try to give really really like I really hold myself to a super high standard in terms of talks. Maybe to cover up the the fact that sometimes I don't know what I'm talking about. Maybe that's what it is. I don't know. No, I don't know. But yeah, I, I try to give good ones. I should record it too, though. Yeah, um, I try to give good talks. I think it's important because you don't you get a lot more publicity from a talk than almost anything else you do. You know. Yes. Uh, but sometimes you hit and sometimes you miss. Sometimes I'll give a talk and I'll be like, "Wow, that was awesome!" Like everything I said was totally on. And sometimes I'll give the exact same talk a week later and you just you know you don't quite hit the mark. And I don't. I don't really know what the variables are that makes a great talk versus a not great talk. Yeah, uh, I don't know. Um, I I don't think I've ever given a, an exceptionally bad. I've had some bad moments where you like forget a word, and then everything crumbles around you. Um, but that's it. Anyway, Maura, um, you're busy. You got a ton of stuff to do. Uh, we can wrap this up. Please tell people how they can find if they're interested in the PSC, if they're interested in Nanograv, tell people where they can sort of find these resources. And then, of course, they'll be in the description and stuff. Sure. I mean, Nanograv's easy. You can go to nanograv.org, and there's lots of information there. There's some podcasts about Nanograv, and we Is have- there? There are, if you go to, that. like, the outreach section. And there are some, um, I mean, of course, your podcasts probably cover it all better and much more recently. Those are really old. Um, but there are some, and there's like a nice little video explaining what Nanograv is. And there's lots of one pagers about our most recent papers. Um, for Pulsar Search Collaboratory stuff, we have, have a website called pulsarsearchcollaboratory.com. You can go there and learn a little bit about the project. Um, the website is not very good. Like, honestly, I find it confusing and we're in the middle of revamping it right now. We've hired someone to like make it really nice and swish and much easier to navigate, but it's not done yet. Um, but you can get the basic information at pulsarsearchcollaboratory.com. Um, if you want to sign up, there's instructions there for signing up. If you're a high school student or a teacher or a student who wants to serve as a mentor, um, you know, an undergraduate or grad student, there's also a link there where you can sign up to be a mentor. So I encourage people to go there and check it out. Cool. And, I, and I'll have the links down below. More thank you for doing this. I appreciate yeah, it. You, People, thank you for listening. Weekend. What was that? Hope you have a good weekend. Staying oh, inside and not doing you. anything. Yeah, I will uh, be quarantining. Um, one, of, one of my favorite beers on the planet came out on Thursday. That's only out for a few months. Oh, um, it's called a... Uh, on some uh, of that. What? Hopefully you can get your hands on some of oh, that. Oh, I already did. I bought two cases. 
um, and I might have to go buy more because it goes off the shelves fast. Maybe not in Corona Corona uh, virus uh, town, but I don't know. We'll see. Anyway, thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, yeah, Nora. thank you.